You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. You are the brave few who ventured out in the snow, in the ice, uh, and probably were totally cooped up after yesterday. You're like, we got to get out. We're going to church. You're like, eh, it's only kind of funny. All right, it's fine. It's a snowy day. Hey, I really want to say thank you to everybody who showed up, clear the parking lot. I just want to say thank you real quick to all of them. Everybody who showed up early to serve. Yeah. So thankful. A couple things real quick. So uh, I, I want to share some really good news with you related to our uh, year-end giving, but you're going to have to wait two weeks for that. We're finishing up the numbers, but I'll tell you this much. Uh, there is something historic to share with you. But since I'm at the men's retreat next week, you're going to have to wait two weeks, which is okay because, you know, give us time to have another snowstorm. And uh, I just want to encourage real quick all the men who are sitting on the fence. I've talked to five or ten men or I've heard from five or ten men who are sitting on the fence. Just make today the day you get off the fence because if you wait till tomorrow, it'll probably be too late. So uh, we're, we're closing it down at noon today. So you just want to go ahead and sign up. Say, you know what? I think I could use some time away. Look up, guys, if you're tired and you need rest, this is the weekend for you. If you want to get away with some guys and hang out, this is the weekend for you. If you want to have some fun, this is the weekend for you. We got all kinds of fun activities. You could take part or not take part. If you want to meet God, be challenged, be encouraged, come away changed. Wives, if you want that for the men in your life, send them 18 or over. Sign up today. All right. Now with that said, we are in the book of Luke. For those of you visiting or watching online, I'm going to guess we have a bigger online attendance today. Welcome everybody watching at home. If you are sitting on a beach, so we do want to welcome you. We're glad you're watching with us and joining with us. We're in the book of Luke. So if you're visiting or new or newer watching or something, we started Luke before Christmas and we've traveled till today where we find ourselves in Luke chapter four. So if you have a Bible, you know how to use it, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter four. The rest of us will be using this little screen up here. It'll be helping us along. Now, we're skipping an important story in Luke 4, but we're going to have to do that a lot. We're going to skip the temptation of Jesus. So let me bring everybody else up to speed on what's happened so far. So Jesus is born. That was good. That had to happen. And then what happened is there's like a 30-year gap between his birth and the beginning of his ministry. And when his ministry begins, it begins with him going to a gentleman named John the Baptist, where he is baptized then, and he says, to fulfill all righteousness. We see the Holy Spirit come down out of heaven and ascend or descend upon Jesus. Jesus, and now he is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Right after that, he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days, and he fasts, and he is tempted by Satan. He overcomes those temptations by quoting scripture, and now where we are in Luke chapter 4, it's time for his ministry to begin. We'll be picking up in just a moment in Luke 4 chapter, or sorry, chapter 4 verse 18. But let me just start by asking you this question, because it is so popular, especially this time of the year. How many of you believe or have I ever wondered if everything just happens for a reason? Right about this time of the year, we hear it from sports people all the time. If they win a playoff game, everything happens for a reason. If they lose a playoff game, everything happens for a reason. Sorry, Colts fans, I was pulling for you. If you're a coach who just got let go, it's okay. Everything happens for a reason. Now, we live in a culture that is, this is such a popular thing that we often don't know what to do with it. If you were to go Google, does everything really happen for a reason? I did this. The top few things that will pop up are psychology websites that are telling you that the way that we've come up with this is to psychologically work ourselves through difficult times. 
bad things happen, we need to know how to cope with it. Uh, somebody gets sick, somebody dies, we lose a job, the company goes under, we go bankrupt, and we gotta just figure out how to cope with it. And so everything happens for a reason kind of gives us us hope. One particular article that was there in that top five search, I clicked on it, decided to read it, and this guy even gives this general thing. He said, look, if you have any kind of faith in God, it could be Allah, God, Buddha, you name it, then you know from your faith that it's important to hang on to hope. Now, that's not a direct quote, but that's basically what he said, and that's the point of his article. This phrase is often used today to give us that extra fuel when our tank is going low, to put a little air in the tires when it seems like we're near stopping. But here's the question. Is it true? The idea that everything happens for a reason rests on this concept of fate. That everything is predetermined either before time began or at least before we began or somewhere before that moment happened and therefore everything is going to work out for good. Is that true? Well, the answer may be yes depending on how you flesh that answer out. When I was taking Greek class, by the way, I realized how much I didn't know about English. Anybody ever study another language? You're like, I don't realize how much I don't know the English language. Because they start to tell you, this is like this, this is like this. And I had an Australian professor. And one day in class, he's telling us that we had to pass the verbs. And I was like, what does that mean? I don't where am I passing it to? Or like, are you a receiver? I'm a quarterback. And then I realized he was saying, parse the verbs. And I still didn't know what it meant. That didn't help me at all. And he, I remember going, I don't know what pass the verbs means. He goes, oh, sorry, parse the verbs. And he sounded like an Australian trying to act like a Southern guy. But... I didn't know what it meant to parse the verbs. What it means is you've got to flesh it out. You've got to put some meat on it. You've got to work on it a little, put some detail to it. And that's how we have to address this kind of statement. We've got to put some meat to it. We've got to flesh it out a little. Because if we go through life simply believing everything happens for a reason, then the implication of that statement is it doesn't matter what I do today. But today's text is going to show you it matters dramatically what I do today. And that what I do today has profound impact on my life. Let's take a look. Luke chapter four, if you will. Right after Jesus' temptation, he shows up at the synagogue. This is common practice. And he walks up at the right moment and they hand him a scroll. And he unrolls the scroll and he starts teaching. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter four, verse 18. And here is what Jesus reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is directly quoting from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. There are a couple interesting things to note. This isn't the very first thing that Jesus did, but it's pretty close in the book of Luke. Now, this story comes in other places in Mark and in Matthew. So if you don't know this, there are four gospel books, four stories of the life of Jesus. And they differ at various points based on what they're trying to accomplish in their story. So when Luke tells this part of Jesus' story, he tells it at the very beginning of his ministry but Mark and Matthew record it later. We don't know where it falls, but Luke is doing it for a reason. So we don't judge that to be inconsistent. We don't judge that to be not precise or not trustworthy then. Luke is doing it for a reason. And the question we ought to ask then is, what is the reason for him putting it at the very beginning, the very first thing Jesus does publicly with his ministry? And here it is. 
Jesus went to his hometown. He's in Galilee. He is in the very region where he grew up, where they watched him. I think it's important to know that Jesus' first ministry was to those he was closest to. He goes to his family, his relatives, his neighbors, his friends, the people that he has seen his whole life, and begins with them. The problem is, and you may know this, the problem is those who know you best sometimes have a hardest time trusting you. And that's what's going on in Galilee. People, if you read there in the verses we skipped, the first few verses here, people are starting to praise him. Jesus, oh, we've heard of all these great things he does. He, he's got all these attractive things that he's saying, and they're very drawn to his message. And then when he stands up to teach, they're all curious. They're all leaning in. And what would happen is there was one major temple in Jerusalem, and people would go to there kind of uh, to make pilgrimage uh, uh, once or twice a year. It was a big deal. But they had local synagogues, kind of these satellite campuses, if you will, all out in the various regions because it was way too far to travel. You know, your, your donkey could only go so fast. And so they would go to these local little communities to gather and worship. But the local communities didn't always have a rabbi or a priest or somebody to teach them. So there would be these traveling rabbis and priests or whatever, and they would go around and get up in the synagogue and they would teach. So Jesus gets up to teach and everybody's drawn into the moment. And they hand him a scroll and he opens it to Isaiah 61 and he reads what is one of the most important messianic texts in the entire Bible. What that means is this. When we say messianic texts, we means, we means, that's good English, see? We have past the verb. Anyway, we got to what it means is there are prophecies in the Old Testament that were to point to when the Messiah came, here's how you would know it was him. This is one of those critical texts, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. When the Messiah comes, this is what he will do. And the content of his message is crucial for us to understand the ministry of Jesus. We see him making the deaf hear. We see him making the lame walk, the blind see. He heals people with leprosy, which is all kinds of different skin diseases. But Hansen's disease, as we call it today, is one of those kinds that sometimes makes uh, your nerves go dead and then people get infections and they lose fingers and toes and limbs and eventually they die. And Jesus healed these people. He touched them. He gave them meaning and purpose. He went to what we call the least of these. Now, praise God, we live in America. We have so far to go, but we've come so far. And what I mean by that is this. See, often in our culture, the least of these have some access to resources, are given some um, deference and respect and honor in spite of whatever situation they may find themselves in. That's not true in every culture around the world. Often those who are different in some capacity or another are frowned upon shunned, cast aside, or cast away. In fact, there are ministries of Christians all over the world, various kinds of special needs ministries or orphanages or boys and girls homes intended to serve those who are in this kind of situation. And the reason that they're doing it is not for money. They're not making money. It's because they first saw their Messiah and the very first message out of the mouth of Jesus publicly in the book of Luke is, I am here to fulfill this calling. I am here to do this. But very interesting to note. If you were to pick up Isaiah chapter 61 and read verses one and two, Jesus leaves out the very last phrase. 
Here's the very last part of Isaiah 61, verse two. I don't have it on the screen for you, but it says this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that part right there, but that's where Jesus stops. Here's the rest of the verse. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Well, that's interesting, Jesus. Why did you stop there? It's not an accident. And it's not an accident for everything that you are about to see. The next thing he does, verse 20, is he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And everybody is staring at Jesus. Like, okay, you read us a passage. Teach us, Rabbi. What are you gonna say? What are you gonna do? They've started to hear rumors about what Jesus has been doing in the countryside, but Luke starts here with his own people. And Jesus gets up in Luke chapter four, verse 21, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I like to call this the mic drop moment. Peace. So this is profound. Because I have heard men like Gandhi and many others in our community today say they love Jesus, but they can't stand the church. And you know what? I get it. I get where that comes from. Christians have done some pretty sinful at times and stupid at other times things and called themselves Christians while doing it. And they did not reflect the heart of Jesus seen in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 there in Luke 4. They didn't represent that or reflect that at all. And to what I would say, if you're somebody who can relate with that kind of statement, what I would say to you today is don't judge all of us by the actions of a few. But of course, they're the ones who are gonna get the most attention because we don't watch the news if it's boring. We watch the news because it's exciting. It's either dramatic or it's encouraging. Either way, we're fine, but it's something to watch. It's not our own life when we're trapped inside the house on a snowy day. Jesus drops the mic, and this is radical because Jesus just said, I am the Messiah. See, that eliminates any other option. There was only going to be one Messiah, and his name wouldn't be Allah. His name wouldn't be Buddha. His name wouldn't be Confucius. His name wouldn't be Dr. Phil. His name wouldn't be whoever it is you look to for hope and meaning and purpose. His name would be specifically Jesus. And Jesus shows up to his own people and says, this text is fulfilled in your presence today. End of teaching. Well, as you can imagine, it didn't necessarily go over real well. Here we go, Luke chapter four, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Is it this Joseph's son, they asked? So here's how you need to interpret that. But again, Luke says in very little space a lot of things. I say in a lot of space very little things. I wish I could be more like Luke. But Luke in this little verse right here basically just said, whatever other words Jesus used that Luke didn't record for us, people were amazed. Like, wow, what this guy teaches, he has authority. See, most of the rabbis of the day would quote a couple of famous rabbis. Gamaliel, for instance, Oh, well, Gamaliel says, blah, blah, blah. Jesus stands up and says, so you've heard. Here's what I say. When he taught, he had like authority. It's as if he believed that he was somebody important, game-changing, life-changing. And they're amazed at his teaching. There's gracious words dripping from his lips. Remember that little verse that was left off of Isaiah 61 verse 2? The day of the Lord's vengeance? Well, why would he leave that out? 
See, the Israelite people in that day were waiting for the Messiah to come. He would set up a kingdom and he would carry out vengeance and he would overthrow Rome and Israel would be great and we would see our enemies fall and everybody else who wanted to not be destroyed would have to bow down to us. And Jesus shows up and says, that's not what my kingdom is gonna look like. My kingdom is gonna look like healing the least of these, serving them, loving them, caring for them, meeting their needs, setting captives free. But isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, man, his words are full of so much life, but I just can't get out past the fact that that's Jesus. I mean, I've seen him my whole life. He's never performed miracles. He isn't all that impressive. Like, are you sure? To which then Jesus replies, verse 23 so Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Again, once you understand context, everything comes to light. This is pretty easy here. In other words, someday you're going to hear about all these amazing things that I've done. And you're gonna say to me, well, come here and do it for us. You did it for them. Why wouldn't you do it here? We would believe in you, Jesus, if you just gave us a sign. The Hebrew people are notorious for asking for a sign throughout the gospels. And before you cast a stone at them and think that you're so much better than them, haven't you said the same thing before? If only God would write it in the sky. If he would just wake up, I'd wake up the next day and there's a letter in my mail and it was clearly signed by God. I don't know how I'd know, but somehow I'd know. Then I would know. It'd be in the dirt. I'd walk outside. Look, this is from God. Did my neighbor do that? That's what you would do. What airplane woke up today and wrote that in the sky for me? Even if God were to give you a sign, you would struggle to believe the sign. You know how I know? Because Jesus answered to one group who asks him of this, tells him, the only sign I'm gonna give you is the sign of Jonah. In other words, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a big fish, a whale, whatever you wanna call it, for three days, Jesus would go into the belly of the earth for three days, and then he would come to life. In the same way Jonah was spit out on land and came back to life, Jesus also would come back to life out from the belly of the earth. And Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. My resurrection will be the sign. And anybody who looks at that will know. So there's a lot of things in the Bible that you may struggle to grasp and hold on to and go, I don't know. Talking donkeys, really? It's in there. Did the sun really stand still for a day? Scientists tell me if the sun stood still for a day, everything would be ruined. I don't know if I could believe all that stuff, pastor. And to which I would say, don't worry about any of that stuff. Start with the resurrection. It's the one sign that if you can anchor your heart to, everything else can start to slowly make sense. Jesus says to them, one day you're gonna say, well, if you really are important, heal yourself. We've heard that you've healed the lame, you've made the deaf hear, the blind see, but here you are hanging on a cross. Why don't you heal yourself if you're something great? Jesus is prophesying a future. One day, this is going to end in a tragic way, and you're going to say to yourself, if you were so great, why did you die? Historians have been saying that for years who don't believe in Jesus. If he was so great, why did he die? If he's God in the flesh, you can't kill God. I've been told that uh, 
Muslims believe that right before Jesus died on the cross, his spirit left him because it would be impossible for him to die like that. That's not the Christian teaching. That God became man, he went all the way to the cross, he died, went into the belly of the earth, and three days later, he rose again. Luke 4, 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys have been doing this for years. Didn't matter if it was Elijah or Elisha or Moses. Every time a prophet shows up, you guys do the same things over and over and over again. And here I am, and you're following in the footsteps of your parents and their parents and their parents. You know what that feels like, right? Verse 25, he says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. This is where if you don't know your Old Testament history, stories like this, you go, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. A really good study Bible can help you here if you're trying to work your way through this. But this one's not that hard. I can describe it for you in no time. You can go read it later for yourself. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 17. So in the Old Testament, there was a prophet. Some would say the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, a guy named Elijah. And Elijah is broken for the holiness of God. He looks at Israel and Israel's unbelief. And Israel's unbelief has led them into disobedience. They will not live for God. And Elijah is broken. So one day in his prayers, he just prays and says, God, make it stop raining so that you can get the attention of your people. And God dried up the heavens. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. James tells us Elijah was a man just like me, and just like many of you men who need to go on this men's retreat. Just saying. And he said, but because he prayed a prayer of faith that honored God, God answered his prayer. And Elijah prayed and the heavens shut up and didn't drop rain for three and a half years. There were a lot of hungry, starving people in Israel. But see, God needed to turn their hearts away from this to something else. As I told you last week, God is trying to save you from something for someone, to give your life significance. And the reason that applies here still in this text is in that story in 1 Kings 17, God is trying to turn Israel back to himself. Israel is living for anything and anyone apart from God. And God knows ultimately that will lead to their destruction. That will lead to their death. And so Elijah prays and says, God, then then shut up the heavens. Get their attention, God. May the pain of this life lead them to focus and depend upon you. But there was a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. This is Gentile territory. This is not God's people. This is not the Israelites. God sends Elijah there, and when he shows up, She's outside, and he says, would you go inside and make me some bread? And she says, I I don't have enough. I had enough for one last meal for me and my son, and then we were going to die. And he looks at her. He says, don't worry about that. Go inside and make me some bread. God will take care of you. She's not a Hebrew person. We don't know if she knew the Hebrew God or if God was trying to make a point. There's a lot about this. We don't fully know But she goes inside, and in faith, she makes some bread. And we're told, if you read 1 Kings 17 and going, we are told that never did she run out of resources. 
miraculously, there just kept being more oil and more flour and whatever else you need to make bread because I only buy it, I don't know. Everything she needed kept miraculously appearing over and over and over again, day after day after day after day after day. Does everything happen for a reason? Well, yeah, but don't miss the reason. Because see, there were many widows in Israel who didn't get a miracle. What's the implication? There were many widows in Israel who did not get to see the hand of God. But one Gentile woman did because of her faith. Let's give you one more here. Luke chapter four, verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And again, if you don't know your Old Testament history, you go, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Well, this one's not hard either. The prophet who followed Elijah, he handed off the, the baton to the next guy. His name was Elisha. Elijah, then Elisha. Easy to confuse the two. And in 2 Kings chapter five, you notice 1 Kings 17, now 2 Kings five, the one comes right before the other. <coughs> we find Elisha, and he's done amazing miracles. But there's this ruler, a guy named Naaman, and he's like second in command of the bad dudes. And he gets leprosy. Now, again, we don't know exactly what kind of leprosy, but it's serious enough, he's very worried. And he goes to his king, the guy who's number one in command of the whole nation, and he goes to him and tells him. And he ends up with the servant girl because just recently they had conquered some portions of Israel. And Naaman has a servant girl. So imagine this, they go in and they destroy Israelites. He kidnaps one of them, a little girl, brings her home, and now she's working for him. She testifies that Elijah is a prophet of God. And he goes to the king and says, look, there apparently is a prophet in Israel who can heal me. And so the king sends a note to the king of Israel. And when the king shows up to the king of Israel, the king of Israel is stressed. He's like, this is a trick. The king wants to destroy me and take all my land and stuff. Well, finally, somebody hears about it and connects Naaman to Elisha. And when Naaman shows up, Elisha doesn't even come out. And Naaman's a little bit irritated, like, do you know who I am? And Elisha doesn't come out. Instead, he sends his messenger, and the messenger says, go to the Jordan River and bathe in the Jordan River seven times, go into the water, and you will be healed. And instead, Naaman looks at the messenger and says, are you kidding me? I wouldn't dare bathe in one of your gross rivers. There are better rivers in my town. Why didn't the prophet come out and do some mumbo jumbo in front of me and make it all go away? Again, you can read this all in 2 Kings 5. Now, what Naaman knows is the false prophets in his country, this is how they make things happen, right? This is what they do. They, they go like this, and they make things happen, and smoke appears, and stuff's supposed to happen with it. But Elisha doesn't want Naaman to think that Elisha is where the power is. The power is in God. So Elisha won't come out. And Naaman's about to go home angry and filled with leprosy. And Elisha's servant begs him. One of Elisha's servants looks at Naaman and says, don't do this. Trust me. Go bathe in the river seven times. And Naaman finally relents and he goes to the Jordan River and he gets down seven times into the river. When he comes out, he has no more leprosy. And Naaman comes back and he is worshiping the true God. Does everything happen for a reason? The answer is yes, but it may not be what you think that it is. Because the reason that everything happens for a reason is to draw you into the presence of God the Father. 
Everything happening in your life is not intended to either hurt you or to make you spoiled and blessed. Everything happening in your life is to intended to draw you into the presence of God that he might reveal himself to you as good and faithful. But see, when you get close to the heart of God, good and faithful starts to get a new definition. Good and faithful may or may not look like you once thought that it would look because you start to draw into the heart of God. You may find that he says, I'm not going to relieve that pain in your life. I'm not going to cure you of that disease, but I will be with you every moment of every day so that you will have peace that passes all understanding. But see, the reason I think Jesus tells this story in Galilee to his neighbors and friends and family is this. I think Jesus is warning them to reconsider their decision. Jesus is warning them to reconsider. So you're sitting here hearing my, my speech and you think it's gracious and full of nice words and you're attracted to it, but you're, you're not believing in me. You're not trusting me. You want to keep me at a distance and say, yes, God, I want to know you. Just don't get any closer than this. I want to hear all those good things you have for my life. I want to know that life has meaning and purpose and that everything works out for a reason. But I don't really want to know you. I don't really want to have a relationship with you. And Jesus is warning them in the same way that the, the, the Elisha's servant warned Naaman Don't walk away. You are about to miss the greatest blessing of your life. Do not just walk away unhealed, unreleased. But the people wouldn't listen. Luke chapter four, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. My, how quickly we turn on God. Many of us will have made New Year's resolutions, and many of us will have made those resolutions about God, making him the center of our hearts, our lives, our families. And many of us, when Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do, or asked him to do, the way and in the timing in which we've asked, will give up, maybe even go so far as to quit and become his enemy. But notice this, over and over and over again throughout the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, even John, we see that the crowds try to take Jesus and to kill him. They pick up stones, they throw them, they try to take him to a cliff and throw him off the, the cliff. They try to arrest him, and time and time and time again, they fail until Jesus says, now it's time, and he doesn't fight back. He even stops Peter from cutting off any more ears. Because nobody could take Jesus' life. He is God in the flesh. He lays down his life so that you would know beyond any sign you've ever asked for that God loves you. He's for you. He's with you. But whatever you're going through right now is intended to draw you into him. Now, what I want you to get from here forward is this. When Matthew and Mark tell this story, they let us in on a little detail that Luke doesn't let us in on because it doesn't fit with what Luke's trying to communicate at this time. But here's the way Matthew says it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. And Jesus, that's he, did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Do you get that? So Jesus shows up first to his own hometown to proclaim who he is 
to release people who are held captive of sin and even demonic influence, to heal those who are sick and lame and hurting and suffering, but their lack of faith prevented him from doing many miracles. What you should hear hear here is not that Jesus only has power when you have faith. If Jesus can raise a dead person, that dead person has no faith, they're dead. Jesus' power is never limited by you. What it shows is the way in which God works with us. Does everything happen for a reason? Oh, you bet it does. But what that doesn't mean is God is up in heaven pulling these strings like a puppet and you don't have any responsibility in life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus was restricted from doing more work in the people because of their lack of faith. Take a look at the way Mark says it. Mark chapter six, verse five. He, Jesus, could do, could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. In other words, Jesus wanted to do more. If you have a fate perspective of life, it doesn't matter what you do or how you do it, All things are just gonna work out. You have a broken view of life. What you do matters. When God made the spiritual beings angels and they rebelled against him and some became demons, it mattered. But God was giving his authority away to spiritual beings to uh, rule and reign and interact with the physical world. When he made Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve turned against him and every single generation since then, it mattered. What you do matters. How you treat your spouse matters. How you love your children matters. If you're fair and honest and not greedy with your employees, it matters. If you take on a government role, you work in the law, that you fight for justice, it matters. That you live a life that honors God, it matters. Do not walk through life and simply think to yourself, it doesn't matter because in the end, it all works out. It all works out because God is good and faithful and working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called, the rest of the verse says, according to his purposes. In other words, yes, all things are going to work together for the good of those who love him. So pain and suffering and heartache and loss and trauma, all those things can be worked for good, but it will be according to God's purposes, which he's called you to. There's still a point where you must surrender. You must live for him and seek him and pursue him and want to honor him and do what's pleasing to him. And then that. There's a reason why everything happens. My caution for anybody watching online or listening today is this. There is serious concern in hearing from God and not responding. Serious concern. I praise God that many in Galilee will have yet had a second and possibly third chance to respond to the gospel. Because after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, many of them will have heard the good news from other missionaries who had gone out. However, how many had to die or suffer needlessly in between this day and that? Luke chapter four, verse 30, he says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his 
The crowd tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff and he just walked right through. And their lack of faith made up his decision. I need to go on. I don't ever want there to be a moment in your life and God forbid there ever be a moment in Kingsway's life where lack of faith pushes God to make a decision that we have forced him to make by our lack of obedience, our lack of cooperation, our lack of partnership with him, our lack of humility. Let it never be for you. I don't ever want you to go through that. And should you find yourself in that place right now, turn, come home, return to Christ. There's one particular passage I wanna show you there were many. I wanted to read Hebrews 3, and I wanted to take you to 2 Corinthians 5, and I wanted it, but for time's sake, I only had time for one more. I want to show you this passage because I think it connects beautifully to what I want to challenge you to today. James chapter 2, verse 14 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. What is the point to what James is trying to say? The church to which James is writing to has gotten lazy in their faith. They have started to look at worldly means of solving problems instead of spiritual means and heavenly means of solving problems. They've begun to believe that what they can see is better than what they can't see, and they've started to make a trade. They've started to compromise. James is warning them, big deal. Even the demons believe in God. They even shudder at the believing in God, but it does not change how they worship. Have you ever noticed when Jesus comes in contact with demons throughout the gospel, he commands them and they obey. They shudder, they understand his authority, they get his power. They're even willing to keep him at arm's distance, but there is no sense of worship of him. There is no sense of surrender to him. There is no sense of obedience and love for him. And James is trying to use that analogy to say, if we are the people of God who love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, then let us show it to the world by connecting our faith to action, and then maybe, just maybe, watch what God does. Maybe, just maybe, when we give God a willing heart, a prepared life, and just watch what God does next. Here's my challenge to everybody in here. I want you to spend this week looking at your life I want you wrestling with God. I want you asking him what it is he intends to do with you and through you. If you've got some situation, a a traumatic situation, a painful situation, I want you to lay that out to him, but always with the understanding of God, you are sovereign and I trust you. Here I am, Lord, use me, send me, do as you will with me. 
But look, what I wanna call you to is I wanna make 2019 the year that Kingsway, the first year, the first year in Kingsway's history that we have to turn people away because we have too many people willing to step up and plug into the ministry of God at Kingsway. It's never happened that I know of in the history of Kingsway. I don't think it's ever happened in the history of a church ever, period. I want us to be the first. I want us to have to write a book about it. I want us to be people coming out and say, how in the world did you make that happen? And I'll say, all I know is God moved and we responded. That's all I know. That's all I know. Listen, today, if you're hearing from God about something in your life, I want you to deal with him with it. We're gonna sing a song, but I wanna specifically put a challenge out there. In front of you is a serve card, and on that serve card, it specifically says, uh, we need your information, your name, your email. And you may or may not know the area you think God may be calling you to serve him in. Listen, let's not be a people who are impressed with the gracious words of Jesus and walk away not connecting with him and what he's doing. Let's offer him our lives. Let's offer him our faith and then let God use us. Check a box. Take a chance. See what God does. Today, if that's you and you fill that out, I wanna encourage you as you're leaving today to go by a kiosk, the connection hub, and just say, hey, I think I'm ready to plug in. I wanna see what God could do through me as well. I'm gonna ask everybody to stand while we sing But let me just close with this one last challenge. Listen, today if you hear the voice of God and he's calling you into a relationship with himself, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. I wanna give you the chance to respond. We'll have our people in the purple shirts, connect shirts, standing down here. Just come to them and say, you know what? I need to give my life to Jesus because he's been calling me, pursuing me, and chasing me, and I keep saying, no, not yet. Today I'm ready. Let's pray. Father God, would you move in our midst? God, would you let 2019 be a year that I say, I will, I will step up and serve. I will be the church. I will live for you. I will give you my life. And God, I will stop fighting against you. I will stop making excuses about how busy I am. I will stop, God, arguing when you tell me to do something uncomfortable. God, I will surrender. Here I am, Lord. Father, I pray that as we do that as a people, would we see your spirit pour forth and do something amazing in us. And all God's people said,